Hello and welcome to my podcast, Whisper in the Shadows, the true story of a real-life undercover cop. I'm Michael Bates and I was a police officer for 15 years in one of Australia's state police forces. I was also an undercover cop for over two years and all the episodes of this podcast are my true stories of what it's really like to be an undercover cop. Rather, I was Michael Bates. So, full disclosure, Michael is not actually my real name. It was my covert identity I used on most of my operations. Everyone has a notion of what undercover policing is all about. Whether you think they're a narc, a covert operative, a dog, or a UC, most people seem to confuse plainclothes police with being undercover. There is a very big difference though. Most plainclothes police are detectives, and they don't wear a uniform so they aren't as obtrusive in public. Undercover is completely different. You become immersed in the world with your targets. And when you were a police officer, part of your role is to investigate crimes. This means you try and find evidence to prove the person you have arrested has committed that crime. This evidence can consist of physical, verbal, video and witnesses. When you're an undercover police officer though, you are the evidence. And you are the reason someone gets convicted of the crimes. That is both exciting and dangerous. So let's get on with the next episode. Episode 3, The Informants. In today's episode, I'm going to explore the many informants that I've worked with across all of my operations. Now, their names will come up again across other episodes, but this will give a be- this episode is going to give a background into them. Now, just as a side, to protect the names of the informants, I'm not going to be using their real names, despite the fact that it's been 30 years and they nor the targets in these operations possibly listen to a true crime podcast. Also, not going to use the operation details like the internal code name. Okay, so the inevitable questions will come up. Isn't the information you're giving away going to identify these people? Well, no, I'm not going to use anything at all that is going to be able to identify them. In fact, you're probably more likely to work out who I am than who they are from the information I give. Let's also not forget that most of these people will have at some stage probably been identified anyway by the fact that when a target got arrested, they thought back to who introduced me to Michael. That's right, it was the informant themselves. I guess I've given this a lot of thought, and I don't believe I'm committing a crime by, at all by detailing this information in my operations, as most of it is in the public domain anyway. Of the four major informants I've had, I know at least three of them have died, and the fourth, I'm led to believe, had cancer, and that was nearly 25 years ago. If for some reason someone can work out who these people really are, it doesn't really have safety implications for them. As for the targets, some of them are still in jail and a number are dead, which is what you get when you use and or deal drugs. Informant, informer, snitch, rat, dog, canary, nah, fink, rat fink, grass. There are many names for someone who informs on criminal activity for or to the police. Basically, an informant is someone who secretly provides information to police or another law enforcement agency. If you watch a lot of crime shows on TV, you're probably familiar with informants. Now, the Urban Dictionary describes they are mostly previously caught wannabe drug dealers that turn rat when facing criminal charges. If executed correctly, they could get a police paycheck for their efforts. 
They don't want to face criminal charges or go to jail, so they live a life of shame. Even though they act as friends, they're just faking it to get information from someone that leads to an arrest. They could never be trusted. They are desperate to make new drug dealer friends to promptly turn them over to proper authorities. When in extremely desperate, they could even turn over their best of friends just to report a new bust. They are very dangerous. This phenom phenomenon in the war on drugs could be explained as easy busts for local law enforcement. Now, that's a bit over the top and obviously written by someone who had been busted, but you get the picture. In the world of law enforcement, informants are officially called CIs or confidential informants. The information informants provide can be useful in catching criminals. And the informant usually gets something in return, money or a reduced prison sentence, for example. Sometimes informant simply means person who gives information an interesting byplay of these slang names is that of NARC or NARC. Spelt with a C, spelt with a K. Here in Australia, and in most of the English-speaking world, there are two separate meanings for NARC and NARC. The informer, rather the former, is an abbreviation of, of the word narcotics officer, and the latter meaning a police informant. I was a NARC with a C, and my informants were NARCs with a K. Danny. Now, he was a low-level uh, dealer and a very high user. He was a Vietnamese person who said he had access to a whole heap of contracts or targets that were selling and distributing large amounts of heroin. He had been caught in a raid, I believe, and had a decent amount of smack on him. He was close to a jail sentence, and this wasn't his first rodeo, hence the reason he agreed to inform. He was a regular Vietnamese-type guy, seemed nice, but was just hooked on, hooked on smack. First time I met him was in a cafe uh, on the very opposite side of town as to where the syndicate was operating, obviously in an effort to not be seen. But it was the 90s and it wasn't as big a city as it is now. The real interesting part came when I discovered my real home was very close to where one of the targets lived. But that's another story. So I meet with his informant and we're going to call him Danny. He's very non nondescript to be honest about you know, 165 centimetres, scrawny with a mop of dark hair. He was obviously an addict as it was about 30 degrees and he was wearing a long sleeve woolly type shirt. And he looked like he hadn't slept. My controller introduced me as Michael and told him I was the undercover he would be working with. We went through some things like he wasn't to tell anyone what I really was or that he was working with the police. He wasn't to take drugs in front of me. His role was to introduce me to the targets, vouch for me, and let me buy and handle both the money and the drugs. I'll repeat that. His role was to introduce me to the targets, vouch for me, and let me buy and handle both the money and the drugs. Now, Danny was still using, despite his, his protest that he wasn't. So Danny's job was to introduce me and vouch for me so I could make the buys on my own without him, and then work my way up the chain of the various syndicates. This wasn't as easy as it sounds. I expected the first buy and introduction with a new target to go a certain way. This was discussed with Danny and he agreed. What would happen is he would speak to the target and then buys them. I was his friend, now I want to buy some gear. He would then press them to meet me rather than buy the gear for me. If that failed, then on the first occasion only, he would buy the gear and bring it back to me, but get an assurance that on the next buy, I would be introduced. Sounds simple and relatively straightforward, right? Well, you'd think so. 
but it never is. And in this case, never was. Now you have to remember these people are informing on their friends to enable themselves to get out of a jail term. They have an emotional connection to them and everything they are doing, i.e. throwing them under a big police bus, is going against that friendship. This can cause some interesting things to happen in their psyche. Also, they are probably still junkies themselves and are always looking for that next hit. These two things combined generally means you get an informant who doesn't think things through and only thinks about the next hit. That can be dangerous for both of us. In the famous words of the school counsellor on South Park, Mr Mackey, Mmm, drugs are bad, okay? Look, all up I think Danny introduced me to six or seven targets, and it generally took at least three meets with each target before he would make the introduction to the target so I could get to make the deals myself. Those first two or three buyers were generally $100 packets. I generally started with the target by buying $100 packets. Now, these are usually enough for two or three hits. We'd only buy them for this reason, to use or to find out the quality of the product, which was my excuse for buying them. Okay, so here's probably a good place to talk about buying and selling heroin, how it's generally sold and how someone makes money from selling it. Back in the mid-90s, heroin was sold either in a packet, as a gram, as a quarter ounce, half ounce, or a full ounce, or so on, um, if you were being a major supplier. An ounce of heroin is 28 grams, half ounce, 14 grams, and a quarter ounce is 7 grams. Usually, you would turn 1 gram into 11 $100 packets, which is about 0.09 of a gram each. Generally, a gram was about five or $600. A quarter ounce was about $3,500. Half ounce, around $6,000. And an ounce, somewhere between ten dollars and $12,000, depending on purity and your relationship with the dealer. Time for some maths. Let's say you buy one gram of H for $600. Now, you wouldn't cut that with anything because it will still have been stepped on at least once, but probably twice by the time it gets to that gram. Stepping on heroin is when you add another element, generally powder like glucose, to the heroin to make extra product. But for the gram example, we won't step on it. So you spend $600, then you make 11 $100 packets out of that gram. And it is exactly a gram. This stuff is measured and weighed precisely. That means for a $600 outlay, you have made $500. 11 times 100, $1,100, minus the $600, is your $500. But it gets better. If you buy half an ounce, which is 14 grams of heroin, and step on it, say, with seven grams of glucose powder, so half again, that gives you 21 grams, slightly lesser quality heroin. Now, that half ounce costs you $6,000. If you sell it by the gram, that is income of $12,600, which gives you about a $6,500 profit. You could probably do that in a week. But if you had people dealing for you and you sold it as a $100 packet, try 21 times 11 packets at $100 each. That's 231 packets, which is $23,000. Profit of about $17,000. And if you buy an ounce, say cut it again with another 28 gram, grams of powder or cutting agent, that gives you 56 grams of heroin at $600 a gram, which is $33,500. Now that's a profit of about $20,000 to $23,000 for each ounce that you sell. If you had the right setup, which of course I alluded to that I did and moved this much weight, say every two weeks, that is a lot of money you are making that you needed to account for. Hello, Mr. Casino. 
Well, that's where a lot of the Asian drug dealers were laundering their cash, as I was informed by one of my targets, who had a massive gambling habit. I did go to the casino to be seen and try gambling and was really, really bad at it. So instead, I came up with some inventive ways of allegedly laundering the cash to give me a clean income stream if I was investigated. So you can see why some people get caught in this lifestyle, but generally it isn't the users who are making this money. Most users sell enough to keep their own habits going, not unlike many of my targets that I dealt with throughout my operations. Right, so I circled back to the introductory buys Danny was doing for me of the $100 package. Danny would organize the first meet and I would drive him there. He would go and get in the target's car and do the deal. Each time I'd give him the $100 and tell him, this is the only one, Danny. You need to see if they will sell to me now, or if not, then at least get them to meet me so they know who I am for the next buy. Sure, sure, was his reply every single time. And every single time, he would go to the car, have a conversation, buy the drugs, and come back to me with the packet. When I questioned him about why I didn't get an intro, his reply was always the same. Oh, they not trust you. They only trust me. They said, maybe next time. Remember when I said that a $100 packet is about 0.09 of a gram? Well, it turns out Danny was snipping a little bit from each buy through his own habit. After each buy, I would take Danny back to his house or somewhere else where he wanted to go. Then I would go straight to meet my controller, give him the packet, and it would be weighed, photographed, and then entered as evidence. My controller would then be responsible for the chain of custody, having the drugs put into the various evidence lockers, as well as sending them off to the labs to get tested for content impurity. I mean, we always did a field test and it was definitely heroin, but courts needed more than just our say-so. Now here's the thing, the weight of the packets was always about 0.07 of a gram. Obviously, this is how I worked out that Danny was snipping some, and also why most targets needed at least two, sometimes three attempts for me to get introduced. Now it all came to a head in what I affectionately called the car park incident. Danny and I had had a meeting with my controller where he was told in no uncertain terms that he wasn't holding up his end of the bargain. He needed to either start introducing me to the targets or he could just go back to court and the police would remove their secret letter advising the courts of his help, which was keeping his ass out of jail. Sheepishly, Danny agreed that at this next buy, I would be introduced. So we head off to the next location, rather to the meat location, which happened to be the car park of an outer suburbs tavern, which at the time was a notoriously rough establishment. Think sawdust on the floor. The target is already there waiting for us. Danny looks at me and asks me for the money. I said, mate, you need to get your skinny ass over there and get them to let me do the buy. I'm not giving you any money. But Danny gets out of the car and walks 25 or meters, walks the 25 meters or so over to the target's car. Goes to the driver's door and has a conversation looking back nervously at me. Then he comes back to my car, gets in the passenger seat and looking dejected says, they will only sell to me this time. Then next time they promise to meet you. Now look, I exploded and I told him he was going to jail. I'd had enough. I gave him the $100 because we really needed an in to this target and told him that he could only buy it if they agreed to meet me right now and sell to me next time. Okay, okay, he said. But he gets out of the car, goes back over to the target's car and this time gets in the front seat. Fuck, I thought to myself, he screwed me again, the little shit. I can see him pointing over to me and then handing the money over to the target. He then fidgets around a bit, gets out and comes back towards my car. As he's doing this, the target starts their car and takes off. I was furious. You could see the look on Danny's face. It was somewhere between being pleased with himself, but also being aware that he'd stuffed up. 
He gets back in the car and hands me the packet. What the fuck? I yell at him. They said they would beat you. I was coming back to get you. Bullshit, I roared. Mate, I was pissed off. I then did something that was completely out of character for me, but in hindsight, was the best thing I could have done. I reached back behind my back and pulled out my gun from where it was sitting in my jeans in the small of my back. Yes, like a real gangster. I grabbed him by the shirt, dragged him across the front of the car and put my gun in his face and yelled, this is the last time, you little piece of shit. This happens again. I'm going to pull this trigger in your mouth and bury you in the bush. Do you understand? His eyes were as wide as saucers and I could feel him trembling. He certainly didn't expect that response and to be honest, I didn't know it. I didn't either. It just happened. He nodded his, his head furiously. He couldn't speak as I had a gun jammed in his mouth. When I relented, he said, Okay, Mick, okay. I will introduce you next time. I said to every person, Danny, this shit of you snipping the buys stops today. Next time, you will introduce me to every person or else and I will do the buy. Understood? I can only imagine what that must have looked like from the outside of the car. Funny thing is, not one person in that car park tried to intervene or actually even looked our way. There were no police reports or anything of the kind. Car registration wasn't even reported to the police. Danny kept his word and introduced me to each target he had made buys from, which meant my operation was off and running. I really had no more need for Danny, but I did keep a tight leash on him. If he was left alone to his own devices, there was the chance he would feel guilty and tell the target who I really was. Something that he did actually once do when we were pulled over by the police. And I also suspect he did do it with one of the targets after I got a phone call at 2am. But that's another story. At the close of the operation, he was picked up with everyone else as a show. And the matters he was originally arrested for and given the choice to inform for were finally dealt with. Betty. Now, Betty was one of the more unusual informants I had. Betty was a man who was gay and had preferred the he, she, her pronouns, although in those days she just preferred to dress and act like a woman. Now, she'd been caught with speed, I believe, and as part of her deal, she was going to give up her dealers as well as some of the dealers in the underworld of strip clubs and gay bars. This was always going to be a difficult job and was going to put my acting skills to the test. You see, the cover story, the only cover story we could really come up with that was going to be convincing was that I was Betty's plaything and I too was gay. Bear in mind, I was happily married to a woman at the time as well. The main reason for this was twofold. One, straight guy in his circle would scream undercover cop. And two, two main targets were both sleeping with Betty. Although they weren't gay per se, they just had sex with her. The only way to meet them without raising suspicions was to be at her house when they came around to take her out. And to be at her house, I had to be gay and her new plaything or boy toy. I know, right? As part of any operation, I had to have a safe house. Somewhere that I could meet targets if I need to, but also somewhere safe that if I was followed, would not put my real life or family at risk. This actually happened in my first operation where I was followed home to my real house. I'll cover that more in one of the upcoming episodes though. I had to find somewhere to live. There was a suggestion between my controller and Betty that maybe I should live there with her. Whilst I think my controller was joking, or rather I hope my controller was joking, I'm pretty sure Betty wasn't. It was never going to happen though. She lived in a one bedroom apartment. I was not sleeping on the couch and I was definitely not sharing a bed with her. That was investing in the cover story one step too far as where I was concerned. I eventually got in an apartment that was close to Betty, but was far enough away that I didn't have to see her every day. 
and the surveillance guys were able to wire up the, the place with recording devices and cameras. Again, story for another episode. Obviously, I had to build a rapport with Betty, which would make people not question that I was her gay boy toy. I spent a lot of time in her place learning about her. It even got to the point where she bought me clothes to wear and made sure I had a proper skin skincare routine to help me look apart. I look back now and while I was given shit from the rest of the squad about it, it was quite an enjoyable experience. Betty often tried to convince me that I should see if I was at least bi, but to no avail. I am very much hetero and very much interested in women. That also nearly caused my cover to being blown and a slight change to my backstory was needed. So we decided that I was going to be bi. You see, Betty was very, very good friends with both of her strippers. They literally lived in the units around her and she used to run clubs. She was gifted free entry to every strip club in the city. We would come to a club and the girls would, in varying stages of undress, come up and hug and kiss her saying hello. Once I was introduced, of course, they would hug and kiss me too. We would go backstage to the dressing rooms where again we would hug, get hugs and kisses from them, but this time they would be naked or near naked. Now, I was a young man who enjoyed the female form, a natural response of a red-blooded male when having friendly physical contact, such as hugging and kissing or showing affection, let alone just being with and seeing naked, stunning girls, was a physical, physiological response of a rocket in my pocket. On one particular occasion, it must have been very, very obvious because Betty came up to me, whacked me in the ground with her hand and said, you need to put that away. You're supposed to be gay. Gay men don't get hard over naked girls, honey. Whilst that smack did the trick, it wasn't going to be a fix. So we decided to change my backstory to being bi and not totally gay. That way, if one of the girls did notice my excitement, it wouldn't draw too much attention, which saved my bacon on a meet with a new target in another strip club. Again, story for a future episode. Betty was a great informant and was able to transition me into taking over buying from the targets and making that separate from her. As we move through the episodes, I'll outline some of those meetings and buys that she facilitated. Betty did, however, have a wealth of information on a number of important people from politicians to a mayor, businessmen, and even church clergy. She told me a number of stories that left me in no, no doubt that my city had a very seedy underbelly and that people are not always what they seem, nor are they as squeaky clean as they portray. I'm not here to tell those stories as they're hers to tell though. Look, throughout my time, I've also had a few other informants that would lead me to one-off buys or things like fencing stolen goods from breaking enters. Again, these stories are going to be explored in future episodes uh, of how I went about gathering out ev evidence on them. As you can see, I didn't only have to worry about myself. I had to be aware that I had someone who was putting their life at risk, albeit because they got caught doing something illegal. But they also had my security in their hands and I had to be very careful with what I said to them about how much of my real life I wove into my cover stories. Why would I weave my real life into the cover stories, I hear you ask? Someone once told me that for a line to be believable, there should be an element of truth to it. This is because it is easier to sell a lie that you believe in and understand. That means that the best lies always have an element of truth. It makes the story easier to remember as well. The only downside is that, that if you give too much away, you could expose something that you didn't intend to. All in all, I would say the informants I dealt with did what they needed to do so they could survive. I genuinely, genuinely believe that for the most part, their indiscretions have been tempered by the information they've provided that has gotten drugs off the street and taken down complete indicates from the board. Has it stopped heroin use or the sale of heroin? 
No, of course not. But if what they have done is stop one kid from getting hooked, one user from taking an overdose, someone's child overdosing and dying, then that's an impact that's worth uh, celebrating. Thank you for listening to Whisper in the Shadows, true stories of a real-life undercover cop. I hope you have enjoyed that episode. In the next episode, we'll explore another exciting operation. Please make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Lastly, if you're an ex-COVID operative or undercover police officer, I would like to chat about your experiences or tell your stories on my podcast, and please get in contact by my email, which is on this page.